0: Today's reading is Matthew 18:15 through 35. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord.
1: So it is the first Sunday in Lent, and kind of one of the traditions that we've established around here, at least these past few years, is we bring up the uh, the big cross uh, from the basement to be uh, here at at the center um, of our worship space uh, for Lent, and it's a helpful reminder for us. You know, we we will drape the cross in black on, on Good Friday and on Easter uh, morning. Uh, we'll have the flowers and they'll be exploding with life. But, but Lent is this reminder of uh, discipleship and what it means to walk with Jesus all the way to the foot of the cross, that becoming His disciples, His apprentices, living our lives according to the vision of His kingdom and, and practicing our faith in such a way that makes this kingdom more tangible entails the cross. And so our passage today, it contains one of the more beloved sayings of the church and one of Jesus's most powerful parables. And the beloved saying for the church that, that you hear said a lot, it comes in verse 20, where Jesus says, "For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them." And so the promise of Jesus' presence is for the smallest of gatherings. It, it only takes two to make a church. And our passage on Ash Wednesday was about the need to become like a child in order to enter the kingdom. And so one of the recurring themes that I've discovered preaching through Ash Wednesday is, or preaching through Matthew, is, is that Matthew is showing this that Jesus is the Savior of the small, and that God is God of the small. Small faith, small resources, small disciples, small gatherings. And so the good news is that Jesus doesn't need much for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's good news because we're not much. And that's just what Jesus is looking for. And so on Jesus' promise to be present in the gathering of two or three in his name, which comes specifically in the context of prayer, I, I ran across this wonderful little saying from the late, great Dr. Henrietta Mears. And Henrietta Mears is a name that, that maybe isn't familiar to most people, but she truly was one of the most influential uh, uh, American Christians of the 20th century. She was this incredibly influential uh, Christian educator. And, and actually, um, in learning about her, I learned that she spent many of her formative years in Minneapolis. Her father had been this wealthy banker um, before the, the, the great, uh, actually, before the panic of 1893 and, and lost everything. In North Dakota, they moved to Minneapolis, and she spent her formative years getting educated here, went to the University of Minnesota, was very active at First Baptist Church downtown before she felt the call to go west, and she ended up at First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood, California, better known as Hollywood Presbyterian Church, which through her became one of the most influential churches in its day. She founded this publishing house called Gospel Light Communications, which is still around to this day. She founded a, uh, a Christian camp called Forest Home, which if you grew up in the L.A. area at all, uh, Forest Home is one of the main places that you take students to, to camp. Uh, uh, when I was working in California, that's where we took our high school students to winter camp, and so hundreds of thousands of people have been there and heard the gospel and, and come to faith in Christ there. And so Henrietta was this amazingly influential woman, and she was this woman of prayer. And as she was reflecting on this passage and what it meant for her and her ministry, she said, well, it's good that Jesus promised to be wherever two or three people were gathered, because that's about as many people as you can expect to show up at a prayer meeting. (laughs) And it's funny because it's true. But but Jesus' teaching here, it points us to the absolute necessity of prayer, especially in that tricky business of church discipline that we see in verses 15 to 18. And what we so often miss or we gloss over in in thinking about Jesus' presence, the promise of his presence in the midst of two or three gathered, is the connection between that promise and the reality of church discipline. And church discipline is something that we, we don't like. I mean, who likes it? And quite honestly, we, we don't often do it, and, and really, it's not easy to do particularly well. But if we're going to be a community of disciples bearing witness in word and deed to the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus and Jesus as our king, then we're going to have to understand how to do it and, and do it in the wisest and most caring and loving way possible. Church discipline is hard. But it's necessary. And and when we don't do it or we get it wrong, the consequences can be utterly disastrous. And that's why we don't just need this passage, but we should love it. Because Jesus doesn't just, you know, leave us on our own to figure this whole business out for ourselves. William Barclay, who I reference a lot, he was this very popular post-war Scottish commentator on Scripture. And he did not love this passage. The part about church discipline, the part about, you know, excommunicating someone. And, and, and I love reading Barclay because he's someone I can learn so much from, especially when I disagree with him. And he says, well, these, these, these words cannot be the words of the actual historical Jesus. And he raises several objections. And, and his, one he raises, it's not his primary one, but he says, well, it, it's an anachronism, uh, Jesus says, well, if this happens, this happens, then take it to the church. And Barclay says, well, the historical Jesus founded no church, and and no church was founded until after his death and resurrection. So this has to be the early church putting words in Jesus' mouth. And I don't agree with that, but it's a fair point to raise. But Barclay's real problem, his real objection, which I think is the the modern Western uh, uh, objection and problem with this passage, is it seems like Jesus is being mean in it. He's he's being mean, he's rejecting people, he's excluding people, when he's supposed to be all about love and tolerance and inclusion. And so Barclay reasons that Jesus couldn't have advocated for excommunication, treating people like tax collectors and, and Gentiles, because Jesus was known for associating with such people. Also, a fair point. However, I have to strongly disagree that such harsh measures are beneath Jesus, and aren't loving. First, uh, treating the excommunicated as tax collectors and Gentiles on Jesus' terms isn't about hating them. But as we see in Jesus' own ministry, about a continuing call to repentance, faith, and discipleship. And second, and this gets at the anachronism objection that Jesus couldn't have said this, the word for church is just the same word as assembly, and this is a word that was used also in connection with uh, gathering at the synagogue, which Jesus and his earliest followers did and continued to do even after Jesus' resurrection. And there was no clean break between church and synagogue for more than a generation after the first Easter. And so it makes perfect historical sense then for Jesus to be talking about how his followers are to deal with sin in the assembly. And lastly, and this this is really the real thing I want to get at, if we don't take egregious sin seriously in the church, deal with it, and if necessary, expel it, we are putting at risk the most vulnerable folks in our communities. What did Jesus say? Just a few verses before this, this was part of our Ash Wednesday passage, whoever receives one such child in my name, so Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to become like this, this little child. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now that sounds harsh, but consider this. How many children would have been spared abuse at the hands of people in the church if we had taken Jesus' warning here seriously? And apply this process of discipline outlined in our passage. All right, if we are a church that is unwilling to do discipline, we are not a safe place for children and other vulnerable people. And I take this very seriously because uh, really the only time I've had to deal with the kind of a big church discipline process, you know, tried to follow this Matthew 18 process. And, and what came out through, through the course of this was, was someone, they hadn't done something illegal But they had used their position in the church to gain access to a young adult in a vulnerable set of circumstances and prey on that person's vulnerabilities in such a way to get what he wanted under the guise of, you know, caring for and coming alongside and loving that person. And instead of helping that person out of their troubles, it only deepened the hurt and kept this unhealthy cycle of thoughts and behaviors going. Insidious. Terrible, horrible. This stuff matters. And it actually had been going on for years, and people had known about it and not done anything about it. And so instead of helping that person, loving that person, they allowed the hurt to go unchecked, and this stuff matters. I mean, I've had family members who've who've been abused, and one of them was abused by a trusted adult leader in the church, and this wasn't, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, that's the handy boogeyman where all these bad things happen. That was right here at Aldrich decades ago, and I'm not sure how the church handled it, but this person was eventually driven out, but in such a way that I'm afraid they went on to abuse again, and this person, this man, he's dead now, but he did spend time in jail for a sex crime, and so I wonder, I wonder what impact did this abuse have on the faith formation of my family member? And one thing we know for sure, it didn't help. And so when I hear these words of Jesus, I don't think, oh, this, this is harsh. This is beneath him. We need to tone it down. I think, good, we have a Savior who actually cares about the little ones. So I just had to get that off my chest. And so thank you. And, and saying all of that, most of the time, thank God. We are not dealing with these big, huge, hairy church discipline cases. Most of the time, the kind of sins, the kind of slights, the kind of wrongs that we're talking about are much smaller. And these words of Jesus here about discipline, they're still, though, extremely wise and helpful in those lesser cases. And they're antithetical to how we normally handle conflict in the church, but, but honestly, just conflict in general. And we can understand the wisdom of Jesus' way of handling church conflict, especially when we contrast it with how we normally do things. And so we're Minnesotans, if not by birth, then at least by, you know, we've, the culture gets into you when you live here. And so how do we normally handle conflict? First rule, avoid it at all costs, right? And does that make our bad feelings go away? No. Does that fix anything? Not at all. And so when someone sins against you, Jesus commands, he says, go, go to that person. So this isn't just a best practice, right? It's our obligation as disciples not to ignore or avoid the situation, but actually, you know, as the saying goes these days, lean in. Because when we don't deal with a situation and we've been wrong, we let that fester inside of us and that builds up animosity, that builds up hatred and anger, and we can actually find ourselves in the position where we despise our brother or sister. And if you know anything about marriage and family therapy, one of the most difficult and toxic things in a relationship is when one of the people in that relationship begins to despise the other person because they. They haven't done conflict or they haven't done conflict well. And and that's really, really hard to come back from. So that happens when we let things accumulate and we let them fester. And so Jesus commands, he says, go to that person, talk to them one-on-one. And so if we want to do conflict well, we've got to be willing to have what what might be the hard or the uncomfortable conversation. But talking to that person one-on-one helps us avoid the other great temptation in how we handle conflict, and that is to talk about someone rather than talking to them. Brings me back to high school, you know? But it still happens all the time, in workplaces and in families. And we, we talk about people behind their backs, and we don't actually do the hard work of saying it to someone's face. And we know that if someone is willing to talk about someone else to you behind they're back they're going to turn around and do the exact same thing to you and it doesn't build up trust and doesn't ha- foster healthy relationships it's toxic it corrodes it destroys community now in the best case scenario a one-on-one conversation it deals with the problem and i and i think in the vast majority of cases it does but if it doesn't jesus says we'll bring along two or three witnesses and this is such wise advice because those, those are fresh eyes on the situation. And, and they can help both parties understand the wrong that's been done and, and maybe how the person making this accusation is in the wrong too. And they can be mediators and arbiters. And they can help people move from fighting with each other to talking one, with one another. And when there's other people around, it tends to lower the temperature in the room and they bring this much-needed, outside, fresh, kind of dispassionate, disinterested perspective. And that's going to handle almost all the other cases. And then Jesus says, if that doesn't work and it's serious enough, then and only then do you take it to the church. And we hear that and we go, hey, okay, no thank you with that part. But keep in mind, the, the, the earliest churches were tiny. The, the kind of churches that, that the early churches that are, are, are hearing Matthew read, these are tiny churches. I mean, 50 adults would have been a huge church gathering. We would have been one of the biggest churches in, in, in first century Palestine or the Roman Empire. You know, we got that going for us, you know. <laughs> We'd have been huge because these, these folks were meeting in houses. These were not big. If you've been even to, um, uh, when I was in Israel, I went to the synagogue at Capernaum. And like, this was the main public building in the village. And you're sort of shocked at the ruins. Like, it was just kind of a small place. Like, it was not a huge room for people to get together. And Christians were meeting in houses. I mean, 20 to 30 adults would have been a very large church. And so we're talking about more kind of a large, small group than this horrible tribunal with, you know, hundreds or even several dozen people sitting around. But the most important thing to keep in mind, though, as we look at this entire process and the the promise of Jesus' presence as we pray our way through it, is that the end goal is reconciliation. At the end of the day, we are not out for revenge. We're not going out there to air our grievances and let... This person know what a bad, terrible, horrible person they've been. That might be part of it. That, 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 that uncovers that process. But the end goal is always to win our brothers and sisters in Christ back and to help them stop sinning, help us stop sinning, and hurting themselves and hurting others. And so the end goal is always, always, always reconciliation, which isn't easy, but is absolutely Necessary. Which leads us to the next part of our passage, Uh, Jesus' parable about a forgiving king and an unforgiving servant. And and this might be my most favorite parable of all. Now, Peter hears Jesus talking about this process of church discipline and talking about reconciliation. And so then he asks this very natural question, yeah, but what if someone is really bad? What if they keep doing bad things over and over and over again? How many times do I have to forgive them? Up to seven? And Peter here thinks he's being generous. The rabbis taught that you only had to forgive someone three times, and this is based on an interpretation of Moses, where or Amos, sorry, where Amos uh, says, you know, for three times and even four, God says that, you know, I'll forgive you. And so the rabbi said, well, if God is willing to forgive people four times, we should not try to outdo God or even touch God. So three times, that's you know, three strikes and you're out. That's actually where the early rules for baseball originated. Was in this passage. It's very biblical. But four balls? You get a pass. That's forgiveness. But Jesus replies to Peter, no, not seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations say seven times 70, 490. The point being, there's no limit. And let's be honest, this sounds crazy. And Jesus recognizes that this sounds crazy. And in order for this to make sense, Jesus understands that we've got to have some perspective vis-a-vis the forgiveness that God has offered us and the forgiveness we're called to offer others. And so in order to give us this perspective, to make this point clear, to help us understand how this expectation can be upon us and be possible, Jesus does what he does best. He tells a story. And this is really a great story. There was a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And a servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Which if you're hearing this for the first time, at this point, this is the record scratch. 10,000 talents? This is an absolutely absurd amount of money. It'd be like saying he owed him a bajillion dollars. There might have, I read one place that said there might not have been that much money in circulation in the entire Roman Empire at that point in time. So just to help you understand how big a debt this is, a talent was worth 15 to 20 years wages of the average worker. So I'm going to be very conservative in my my math here. So let's say someone who makes, say, 25 grand a year. This is like a full-time kind of service, uh, minimum wage, fast food worker type salary. So $25,000 times 15 is $375,000. Again, I'm being conservative. I'm not taking the 20-year range, just the 15-year range. And so one talent is conservatively, $375,000. But remember that he owes 10,000 times that. Off the top of your head, anyone know what 10,000 times 375,000 is? What? A bajillion, a bajillion. bajillion. That is technically correct. No, (laughs) $3.75 billion. And again, this is a conservative estimate. It's actually probably more like $8 to $10 billion, depending on how you do the math. And so the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a king who goes to settle his accounts, and one of his servants owes him several billion dollars. I hope you can see that Jesus is having some fun here. The <laughs> amount of money is owed is absurd. Basically, it's Jesus saying, this guy, he went, he went to settle his accounts, and he met with someone who owed him all of the money in the world. And the king, understandably, is mad. Something really bad must have happened for this guy to owe him that much money. <laughs> And so the king, he's going to recoup. I mean, he's not going to recoup much of his money, but he's going to get a little revenge. And so he plans to sell him, his family, everything he owns off. And so then the man, what does he do? He falls down and he begs. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you. Excuse me? Have patience and I will repay you almost $4 billion? How could he ever do that? I mean, if he paid the king $1 every single second... It would take him 119 years to fully repay what he owed. And that's if no interest was being accrued. And and so the whole situation is just bonkers. And the servant asks for more time. Just give me more time. And if you're in the first century and you're hearing this, you'd expect that the king is going to execute this guy on the spot. I mean, the temerity. That's an insult to the king, his honor and his intelligence. Off with his head. But instead, the king does what in this context literally would have been unthinkable. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. An infinite debt. Completely forgiven. Unbelievable. So the servant has, has been freed. He's been forgiven this debt. And now apparently he has a new consciousness of accounting and making sure that, that, he, that he's doing a good job uh, keeping his account square. And so apparently he goes out, he runs into someone who owes him a hundred denarii. A denarius was a uh, one day's wage for your average worker. So using the terms I used earlier, 8,300 bucks basically, let's say, give or take. And, and his reaction is violent. He seizes this man by the throat. He says, pay me my money. And the second debtor pleads, he says, have patience with me and I will pay you. Almost the exact same words that this first debtor had used with the king for an infinitely larger debt. And I mean, how big is the difference between these two debts? So if the second debtor were to pay back his debt at the rate of $1 an hour, like the other guy, it would take him two hours and 19 minutes versus 119 years at this point, you're hearing the story. You think, oh, of course he's going to hear. The second the, the, the guy who's just been forgiven is going to say, oh, how could I have been such a jerk here? Of course, I've just been forgiven an infinite debt. I'm going to forgive you this modest debt. But the shocking thing is he doesn't forgive. And he throws the second debtor in jail, and then the other servants see this, and they go, uh-uh. So they go tell on him to the king, and, and, and the king gives this wicked servant, this unforgiving servant, his comeuppance. And so what is Jesus doing here? What's he saying here in telling this story? You know, Peter is asking about the limits of forgiveness, and Jesus' story is all about saying it's a matter of perspective. That Peter, you, and and us, we're, we're like the first servant in this story in our relationship to God, infinitely indebted to him because of our sin. We owe this debt we can never repay, but God in his mercy has forgiven us. The debt has been erased, but remember that someone always pays. And that's where Matthew is leading us to, to the cross, where that debt is paid. Paul writes in Colossians 2, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. One of the great church fathers, Chromatius, said in reflecting on this parable, For we are held in sin guilt as if under the debt of some creditor note, but the Son of God has annulled this note written against us by the water of baptism and drops of his blood. And so in his mercy and through his blood, the debt we owe God has been erased. And Jesus says, if you've been forgiven that much and you limit what you're willing to forgive your brother or sister, you're just as bad as that unforgiving servant. There's no comparison from this perspective between what we've been forgiven and what we're being asked to forgive. And T. Wright says, from God's point of view, the distance between being ordinarily sinful, what we all are, and extremely sinful, what the people we don't like seems to be, is the distance between London and Paris from the point of view of the sun. And so in this parable, we, we see the, 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 the coming together of, of the theological and the anthropological realities of the gospel. And the anthropological reality is who are human beings in light of the gospel? We are, are those infinitely indebted to a God we can never repay. But the theological reality of the gospel is this, a, a deep forgiveness of all indebtedness by a gracious king. And so when it comes to us forgiving others, it's a matter of perspective, this perspective. This is how church discipline is even possible. With This perspective. And so Jesus, then he ends with a warning, a warning we can't ignore. The end of the parable is so also, which is throw you in jail until the debt is repaid. My heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Because here's the hard truth. Forgiveness, the forgiveness that we receive from God is without conditions, but it's not without consequences. And the Christian life, the life of discipleship is holding those two things in creative tension. We are forgiven without conditions, but not without consequences. Grace is free, totally free, but it ain't cheap. And we hold these things in creative tension, not for the sake of trying to do the impossible, but for the sake of God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And and forgiveness is hard. I'm a a grudge-holding type person. That's hard, you know? People do things, they hurt you, and you go, I can't believe that they did that, that they did X, Y, Z. You know, I thought they cared about me. I thought we had a relationship and then, and then you treat me that way? But then I look at this parable and I go, what's wrong with me? The grace that saved a wretch like me is so amazing, how dare I withhold my lesser grace from anyone else? How dare I disgrace my gracious God like that? Should not you have mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? Yes, 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 yes. The Lord help me And Lord, help us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.